the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Putka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? So, Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead. The leader of ISIS, killed in a raid in northern Syria by U.S. Special Operations Forces. A great day for America and the battle against terror. It is a great day for America, and uh, I think we could have a little subtitle for our podcast this week, which is Baghdadi is dead, long live ISIS. Yeah, or ISIS is not. I mean, that, yeah. that that's the problem for us. So, let's well, let's talk about Baghdadi first, sure. because, you know, there have been, over the years, numerous reports that he was dead. It's amazing to me, by the way, nobody has really focused in on this, but that they brought a DNA testing kit with them. Absolutely, yeah. Confirmed it right away, which is which is great, and it really does take away the doubt that, that is sowed in the minds of jihadi groups who aren't sure that they're that the big boss is is actually gone uh, hidden apparently according to the president in a tunnel with three children to protect him whimpering crying yeah. shaking in fear okay he didn't, <laughs> he didn't have any he didn't have any audio and I don't believe that I hate that yeah. I just I hate that sort of theatrics and Donald Trump just can't help him but you know what he his point that he's trying to make which is is that one these guys are losers uh, he used that word and I love it the fact is that they're not they're not heroes they're not courageous that when and they usually, usually what happens with these guys is when they're finally cornered, like Osama bin Laden was cornered, he was hiding behind his wife. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was hiding behind three children. These guys are cowards, and good for Trump for pointing that out. Yep. No, I couldn't agree more. I, I really couldn't. And and I don't want to take away from the president. I thought it was a, a real shame to see crowds at the Nats game booing him on the day yep. that this happened. You know, not, not because I like Trump or because I think Trump has earned our respect, but because the office of the president is the office of the president. And especially and, on a day like that. Exactly. Uh, so 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 let's 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 give it to Trump and let's also let's also talk a little bit about how do we get this great intel that helped us. All of the reporting, and there's been some pretty good reporting out of uh, out of a bunch of places, Newsweek, The New York Times, and other outlets, that this intel came from from Iraqi and Syrian Kurds. Yes, absolutely. Our allies who we've, uh, who we are abandoning in the process of abandoning in Syria. But before we get to that, let's talk about this issue of credit, because I think it, we, President Trump does deserve credit for this accomplishment, just as Barack Obama took credit for the uh, killing of Osama bin Laden. Although you remember Donald Trump's tweet. He did. He right. Did. He said, I, he said I know. Obama did It goes both ways. Credit. It goes ways. But Obama took, uh, took credit. Lots of people were willing to give him the credit. And he deserves the credit to the extent he did make the call to go. These are these are actually very hard decisions because there's a lot of issues involved. Uh, it can backfire on you. P- Americans can get killed. We all know about Desert One with uh, Jimmy Carter, with the rescue of the hostages, which was an absolute disaster and ended his presidency. Uh, so these are very hard calls. Among other things. And, and by the way, not everyone would make that call yeah. because oh. Joe Biden, who is the Democratic frontrunner for president of the United States, we know advised Barack Obama not to give the order to go against Osama bin Laden. Mark Bowden, in his book, he's the guy who wrote Black Hawk Down, right. wrote a book uh, called The Finish, The Killing of Osama bin Laden, said there were only two major dissenters in the sit room when they were making the decision to go on the bin Laden raid. It was Gates and Biden and Gates Secretary later, of Defense, Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, and later Gates called 
the president after the meeting and said he had changed his mind. He thought he should go. And Biden was the only one sitting there saying, don't do it. And his reason was, if it goes wrong, he was thinking Desert One, this could cost you the election. Okay, So, so not okay, wait, everybody wait. would make the call. Yeah, no, no, that's true. Credit to Donald Trump for making the call. Credit to our credit to our military for getting this done and getting it done good and not losing anyone in the process. Let's just have a momentary sidebar. Honestly, you and I both worked with Senator Biden. You know, a lot of respect for him and his service to his country um, as a as a senator and as vice president. But is he ever right? <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. No, I, I mean, he voted wrong. You know, fr- from the perspective of his base, he voted wrong. On the Iraq war, he supported it. He voted wrong on Desert Storm. He opposed it. <laughs> he voted wrong on Osama bin Laden. I mean, he has terrible instincts. But he's the he's the guy who's coming with experience and judgment. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> well, with, you know. And, and let's be fair. Our president makes everybody look like they've got for, good for anyone who says that it couldn't get worse than Donald Trump guess what uh, <laughs> I'm not could. sure I'm not sure that's right but, but anyway but, let's get back but, to but, the matter at hand Donald Trump deserves credit for carrying out this mission for making the tough call to go ahead but he, that doesn't absolve him from the fact that he has ordered the pullout of all of our troops from Syria and abandoned the Kurds who are the very people who made it possible for us to carry out this raid but the reality is that the president's decision, the president's very abrupt decision to pull our very small number of troops out of northeastern Syria was a huge mistake that will inevitably help rather than hurt whatever comes after Baghdadi. On NPR, uh, after the raid, Nicholas Rasmussen was interviewed. He was a counterterrorism official in, this, in the National Security Council during the bin Laden raid. Very smart guy. And he, was, he asked the question, which he didn't have the answer to, is... In six months from now, could we have carried out this raid? And the answer is probably not. That's uh, exactly because, right. Because if we pull out these troops, it w- this would not have been possible without the assistance of, the, of both Syrian Iraqi Kurds and our allies and their intelligence capabilities and our boots on the ground. You have to have boots on the ground to carry out these kinds of missions. And the president is pulling out our boots on the ground entirely from Syria. So if we had had to do this six months from now, we probably couldn't have carried it out. And then the other thing I want, I want to point out is I, I had when I was in the Bush administration, I wrote President Bush's speech announcing the that we had killed the previous leader of ISIS, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. And just in case you wondered whether there's going to be another ISIS. Exactly. So in 2006, we killed the leader of ISIS. It was then al-Qaeda in Iraq had just switched its name to Islamic State. And uh, we killed him. And here we are more than a decade later, and we've killed the leader of ISIS again. And guess what? The, the movement survived. And the reason it survived after Zarqawi being killed is because we took our boots off their necks, as you like to tease me for always saying, and they came back. And we're making the same mistake right now. When that speech that President Bush gave, he said, Zarqawi is dead, but the mission is not over. And Gosh, I wish Donald Trump had said something like that yesterday because that is absolutely true. The mission in Syria is not over. The terrorists are powerful. They have lots of capabilities. They have between 14 and 18,000 troops. You know, in the, at the end of the uh, Bush surge in Iraq before Obama pulled out and withdrew all of our forces and allowed them to reconstitute themselves, they had 700 fighters left. Right. They were, no, they they were con- defeated. They reconstitute themselves very quickly. And I think that's exactly what we can expect is that those who have gone to ground when once again confronted with the free and clear ability to go after either the Assad regime or to go after the Turks or to go after the local population, 
they will come back. I mean, we've seen this rodeo so many times before. That's what I don't understand. I mean, I do understand. I do understand that that President Trump doesn't care about the facts, doesn't care about the precedent, and doesn't care about the recommendations of his national security advisors, all of whom told him that withdrawing from Syria was a major mistake. My fear is that he's going to try and get our troops out of Iraq now, too. It's entirely possible. Um, And look, he's making the same mistake that Barack Obama made in 2011 uh, with the withdrawal from Iraq. Even, you know, Barack Obama campaign saying uh, we got to stop doing nation building abroad and start doing nation building here at home. And Trump used the exact same language. Yeah, no, I know he did. It's, he, um, it's incredible. But so, so here's, here's a question for here's a question for people in the administration. You know, we have how many high value prisoners that are being held in this territory that Donald Trump just gave up to the Russians and the Turks, the Turks who have been known to work with ISIS in the past and who've known, been known to funnel money and weapons and fighters to ISIS. And well, here's the question. Would we have trusted the Turks to carry out this mission? No, absolutely no, not. I think not. that's a would great question. <laughs> they would have told him. They would have warned him. They would have let him go. They would have cut a deal. It needs to be us on the ground running these operations through our proxies. We have a proxy army, a trusted proxy, a trusty army. proxy, trusted allies. But we need to be in charge of this. We cannot, you know, market out our national security to uh, our contracted out to the Turks and the Russians and the Syrians for crying out loud. So the question that people should be asking themselves is, oh, all those people who were in prison, all of those high value terrorists who the Kurds were holding in northeastern Syria, what's going to happen to them? And, oh, by the way, what about all of those wives and children that are being held in these massive camps being guarded by the Kurds? What's going to happen to them? Where are they going to go? Do we trust the Russians? Do we trust the Syrians? Do we trust the Turks? There's nobody who's going to be working with us. We are basically handing off an entire huge community of sworn terrorists and the next generation of terrorists and their kids to these people. No, you're absolutely right. Look, there are two issues that we need to talk about. Number one are these prisoners. Okay, so there are about 10,000 prisoners in in Syria who are ISIS prisoners, including about 2,000 foreign fighters and a handful of high-value detainees that are being held in there who are really, really super dangerous guys. Then there's a second issue, which is that ISIS has, has President Trump deserves credit. He removed their caliphate. That's a big, big deal that they've lost their territory. And now we've killed the caliph. Uh, that's very important. But they are still very, very powerful. They have between 14 and 18,000 fighters. They have hundreds of millions of dollars that they have stole from Iraqi banks and have invested in businesses across the Middle East. So they have money, they have operatives, and even though Baghdadi is dead, they still have leaders and charismatic leaders. They've already named a new leader. And so, Exactly. And so we have to deal with the, the danger of these detainees and what's going to happen to them and the danger of these people who are not yet detained and who pre- present a clear and present danger to the West and to the United States. How are we going to handle this problem? It's not just because the, the danger whenever you kill somebody like, like bin Laden or Baghdadi is everyone thinks we won. It's over. And <laughs> mission accomplished. Mission accomplished, to, to quote a phrase that I didn't write. <laughs> and, and it's not true. 
We have not won. ISIS is not defeated. Baghdadi is, we started in the conversation, Baghdadi is dead. ISIS is not. Right. So we really had a great opportunity to sit down with Eric Schmidt from the the New New York York Times Times a couple days ago. We talked to him right before the Baghdadi operation, so we're not going to be speaking about that. The reason we talked to Eric was that we wanted to get a sense post-pullout of what the state of ISIS is. And that's still completely relevant today because he, he tells a very chilling story about exactly the strength of ISIS, the situation in these camps uh, with these children who are being indoctrinated and all the rest of it. And so uh, let me tell you about, a little bit about Eric. Since 2007, he's reported on terrorism issues with assignments in Pakistan, Afghanistan, North Africa, Southeast Asia, among others. And he's the co-author of a book with Tom Shanker, another great New York Times reporter, uh, called Counter-Strike, The Untold Story of America's Secret Campaign Against Al-Qaeda, which was published in 2011. I know him from the Pentagon days. He was actually a Pentagon correspondent when I worked for Secretary Rumsfeld. So we've traveled around the world together to all of these hotspots. I've been with him on, on planes going to uh, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, uh, uh, Uzbekistan, you name it. You name the stand. Eric and I have been there together. Uh, so um, uh, we're excited to have him on the podcast. Have a listen. We think you'll really learn something. Eric, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast today. Sure. Thanks for having me. So you had a piece in the Times the other day, ISIS reaps the gains of U.S. pullout from Syria. Tell, tell us how. Well, what's happened is since the October 6th phone call between President Trump and President Erdogan, you've had a series of things happen. Most immediately, you had the president's order to pull U.S. troops off the border. It was just initially a couple of dozen Green Berets, basically. But that essentially opened the way and green-lighted the Turkish operation to come forward. But meantime, what's happened is the Syrian Kurds, the longtime allies of the United States who've been helping the U.S. fight ISIS on the ground for the last several years. So what you have here is um, and the Turkish offensive is coming in and basically tell the United States, sorry, but we've now got a fight on our hands for our survival. We're not going to be able to carry out this counter-ISIS mission anymore, the counter-Daesh mission with you anymore. And so this poses a couple of problems for the United States. One is the day-to-day operations that they were doing on the ground, sometimes with U.S. special forces, sometimes on their own. That's all ground to a halt. And how many missions of those were there? There were as many as a dozen a day, up to a dozen a day that they were doing. Some of these were patrols. Some of these were joint operations where they'd actually go raid a cell. Because what you have are, there are still tens of thousands of ISIS fighters who've basically gone to ground. You know, obviously, the caliphate is gone. They were defeated territorially. But many of them have you know, faded into the woodwork, if you will, fled into the desert, basically to fight another day and continue their guerrilla you know, campaign. So that, number one, that's the first thing that happened. Those kind of day-to-day operations ground to a halt. The second thing that the U.S. and the, the global community is very concerned about is the Syrian Kurds for the last two years have been basically the jailers of all these ISIS detainees who were captured on the battlefield in Syria. And so they've been holding in some two dozen sites or so about 11,000 ISIS fighters. 9,000 of these are from Syria and Iraq. 2,000 are from all sorts of other countries, including the United States, all over the, all over the world. But basically, they've had to create a, a system of makeshift prisons, converting old schoolhouses and warehouses and things like that, put bars on them, and basically take some of their fighters off the line and, and turn them into uh, detention center workers, jailers, if you will, to hold on to these ISIS fighters. 
And Ambassador Jim Jeffries knowledge that at least 100 of them are missing. That's right. Um, it's a lot of That's right. missing terrorists. And the U.S. the U.S. has identified about 50 high-value targets, high-value individuals that are captured that they're most worried about. These are kind of leaders, ISIS leaders, that are in some of these camps and they're most concerned about. There's no indication yet any of those have been free, but only two of them, two uh, British subjects called the Beatles, who were some of the most infamous of these fighters and were responsible for some of the beheadings. Exactly. They got yeah. those guys out. They, they got the trans, the U S transferred them out of Syria before all this Where'd latest they go? stuff. They went to Iraq. They're now in Northern Iraq in U S custody, waiting to kind of see whether they'll go back to Britain, where they'll be extradited here to the United States for trial. We Wait, don't they're in, yet. they're in Kurdistan. They're in Kurdistan. Exactly. They're Northern, oh, ironic. Northern Iraq, Northern so Iraq, but in U S custody to bail us out of our abandonment of the Kurds. Basically when it comes <laughs> When it comes to hold on to ISIS in, in both countries, yeah. yeah. So, Eric, let's just, there's so much to unpack here. And let me first ask you, Michael Rubin very nicely explained on an earlier podcast that, you know, we weren't working with the Kurds in northern Syria first. We were working with Turkey. It was only after the siege of Kobane when we realized that the Turks were, in fact, helping ISIS and al-Qaeda and other Islamist extremists, and that the Kurds were fighting them and fighting them extremely capably, that we switched sides. Is that, you know, is that how you understand it as well? That, that's right, Danny. So you've got, obviously, Turkey, a decades-old uh, NATO ally uh, right there on the border, and that was the initial thought, was Turkey should be able to help deal with this problem. The thing was, President Erdogan had other things in mind. He was out to topple the government of President Bashar al-Assad in Syria, and he didn't really care who did it. So Turkey became kind of a one-way freeway into Turkey for all sorts of violent extremist Islamists who came into Turkey, kind of armed, got equipped, and then went across the border. And for Erdogan, as long as they weren't staying in Turkey, he didn't really care. Well, this became a problem when you know a lot of these cells started remaining in Turkey, and suddenly they started even attacking certain Kurdish installations and bases like that. And the Turks just, you know, were really struggling to deal with an ISIS problem of their own inside of Turkey. So not only could they not really project across the border into Syria and be a capable ally and pursue ISIS over there, they were having trouble just dealing with the growing number of fighters that were coming from all over the world and using Turkey as essentially a staging area to go into into Syria itself. But, but Mike, Michael makes the point that uh, they were not just simply passively allowing this to happen, but actually aiding ISIS. And they said there was, he said that there was a video where they show ISIS fighters were trying to outflank the Kurds in Kobani, and the Turks allowed them to go into Turkish territory and come around to outflank them. Yeah. Uh, and the Turkish oh. interior minister just a week ago said that we're going to cut a deal with ISIS. I mean, how can we depend on Turkey to keep uh, ISIS down? Well, obviously, it's been very frustrating for U.S. officials over the last several years in in dealing with Turkey as as an ally in this fight. Just as you say, they have not aggressively gone after ISIS. There are indications that they've even been supporting ISIS fighters, even when they're fighting against the Syrian Kurds that we consider, the U.S. considers its allies, again, because Turkey views Kurds are Kurds. Whether they're in Turkey, whether they're in Iraq, whether they're in Syria, they see them as their existential enemy and they want to wipe them out wherever they are. And so if ISIS wants to go and fight against Kurds, that's more power to them, I think, is the Turkish view. Even though ISIS poses the much greater threat to the U.S., American interests, and to the West and Europe in general. So if we now play all of these, you know, not 
unconfusing dynamics forward because Turkey has absolutely played all sides here. They've been for Assad, they've been against Assad, they've been with the terrorists, they've been against the terrorists, and they've even had some moments of reconciliation with the Kurds, which obviously now have have passed. But what does this mean going forward? Well, I I think what's happened here, you look at what most analysts assess this, and I would tend to agree with this, is there, there are at least three big winners in this. The Syrian regime backed by Iran and by, and by Russia. So those are two others. So you've got the, the big winners here are all the players already inside of Syria who've been trying to push out into that last portion of territory that was basically controlled by the Syrian Kurds. So you've got the, the Syrian government in Damascus and their patrons Iran and Russia, and then also ISIS now. These are the big benefactors. The big losers here, as I see it, are the Kurds and the United States because they've had to pull back from the border. You basically suddenly now you, you lose some of that space that's in which you were fighting ISIS. You've basically thrown one of your key allies under the bus and you, if you're the United States, you've also signaled to allies in the future, whether it's in a counterterrorism campaign or any other kind of campaign that requires a coalition, you know, how much can you really trust the United States now in kind of going forward? If they treat the Syrian Kurds like this, how are they going to treat us? You've right. got to be worried about that. Right. No, that, 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 is clearly, that is clearly the question, but not to sound like Mark or anything, but... <laughs> What's wrong with that? Not that there's anything wrong with sounding like Mark, I should add, but not to sound like Mark or anything. But let's take the the president's perspective for a second. The Turks are a NATO ally. The Assad regime doesn't like ISIS. The Russians don't really like ISIS either. Is this method of controlling ISIS, could it potentially work? Could he he actually, for all the wrong reasons, be right? Well, if it did, you'd have to kind of see a change in history because you really haven't seen this kind of fight being very effective. You haven't seen the regime, the Russians or the Iranians really take on ISIS as in a counter-ISIS type fight. Uh, there have been places where the ISIS has been a component of the opposition to the government in Damascus, where obviously the regime and the Russians have, have dealt with them very harshly, whether it's on the ground or with barrel bombs or other things they've done from the air. But in a strictly in a counterterrorism or a counterinsurgency campaign, none of these forces on the ground really have been well equipped to do that and have really shown that they want to be able to do that. Now, we'll see what happens because right now under this agreement that was announced between Putin and Erdogan, they are now responsible for a big swath of territory, basically going 20 miles down south of the Turkish border. And they basically told the Kurds, stay out of that area or we'll go after you. Well, we'll see what, you know, what ISIS does in that, in that area too. We really don't know. Right now, ISIS has been kind of up and down in small villages in the Euphrates River Valley and out to the west of that area. And so they've been kind of laying low, basically, you know, regrouping, rearming, refitting, and, and trying to regain recruits. And I think what you're seeing now, and what you've seen already in the last couple of weeks, they're trying to take advantage of this chaos. They've stepped up their attacks on the Syrian Kurdish fighters. It's kind of, they're not having to fight on two fronts. They were. And you've seen them try to conduct jailbreaks, which is what they did in Iraq, going back to the the creation of ISIS in the first place. Break out these leaders, including some of these top 50 most dangerous people that have been gathered up there over the last several years of fighting. Break out the leaders, break out the fighters, and then you've got some real stuff to work with here for an ISIS 2.0 or however it's going to reconstitute itself. So let's talk a little bit about the state of ISIS. 
what is their capability right now? How many fighters do they have? What kind of money do they have? And what is the likely outcome of not having the Arbut on their neck? Well, Mark, you, you neatly summarized kind of the trajectory of what happened to ISIS. What they did was they basically reverted back to their guerrilla roots. And the DOD, the Defense Department, the intelligence community estimates there are anywhere from fifteen to 18,000 fighters still straddling this Syrian... Iraqi border area. They've gone to ground and they've basically gone back to what they were doing before, carrying out guerrilla attacks, IED strikes, mostly against in Iraq. More importantly, though, what's happened since all this in 2014, they now have spawned all sorts of global affiliates. You see them in West Africa. You see them in the Sinai. You see them in Afghanistan. You see even parts of you know ISIS affiliates cropping up in far-flung places in the Philippines and in Indonesia and these kind of places. And so even as they've been beaten down and they've lost their physical territory, they still are a very potent machine in terms of pumping out the propaganda, pumping out their ability to recruit fighters, and also use social media and other means to recruit money. They were able to bankroll a lot of money. They, you know, they, when they went into Iraq, they seized just a lot of cash. They basically were bank robbers and grabbing millions of dollars in cash and doing that. And they were, before the fall of the caliphate, they were smart enough. They saw where this was headed. They got a lot of that money out, uh, both in cash, but they also invested it in various businesses around the Middle East, uh, legitimate businesses that they're still operating today, in which the U.S. and other Western countries are trying to get after them. But it's hard. It's hard to do that. So again- Is there an estimate of how much they have? It's it's millions, if not billions, in the low billions of dollars. It's, it's this it's is the lot. money that they stole yeah. from the Iraqi yeah. Central Bank it, and from and, elsewhere, and then, right? And then over time, they basically set up an extortion system. I mean, they had a governance, and so they were taxing right. people right. for living. They were taxing people for and, coming in and out of the country. And so, you know, this has clearly been disrupted. They, they're nowhere near the strength where they were before, but they're still a very potent force because they still are very savvy in the way they use the Internet and they use, use media and the way they appeal to people. But if you look back at the now we're 18 years, almost two decades into the war on terror, the era of the caliphate was an anomaly in in the terrorist world, right? When we say we've defeated ISIS, no, we've just taken away that small experiment in claiming a physical caliphate, but they're just as powerful right. as the terrorists were that carried out the attacks the, of 9-11. Exactly. And the movement, the ideology is still very much there. And you still you have this competition now between ISIS and al-Qaeda, because ISIS was kind of a tortoise in the hair, if you will. Uh, al-Qaeda and, and Osama bin Laden always thought it was going to take more time to get to this caliphate phase. ISIS was in a hurry, and they felt, we have the opportunity now. Let's seize it while we can. And that's where you that's where you have it. And again, remember, it doesn't take a lot to maintain a terrorist organization. In, in a way, they're better off now because they don't have to maintain this state. They were, they were providing services when they controlled Raqqa and Mosul like that. They were picking up the garbage. They were doing health care, all that. All that they don't have to worry about anymore. They're not you know, they pay their fighters some salaries, of course, but now they're back, as you said, Mark, back to their traditional roots of a kind of guerrilla insurgent network. So you have these two groups that have both been dealt significant setbacks. They've had to adjust, and they're now, now you're seeing them kind of play out in this battlefield as the world kind of turns its attention to other national security interests. The United States, for instance, has a whole new you know, strategy at the Pentagon where they're focused on great power competition with China and Russia. And they've kind of moved away from the, the idea that we're going to continue to fight in your, you know, the two decades endless wars, in the, in, the, in the words of the president. Let's take on some of these other challenges, economic challenges, of course, elsewhere. And there's always the danger, and this is what you hear from the counterterrorism 
uh, specialists in the country, don't take your eye off it, or in your words, Mark, don't take the, don't take the jackboot off the neck because Al-Qaeda or ISIS or some other version will spring up again. That has been their history. And if you don't keep them down, they will, will spring up again. That's, where we see, that's what we've seen happen in places where you don't can have that continuous pressure. Um, so let me take you back to Syria. Let's just talk about these, these camps and prisons. So Al-Hol, uh, one of the New York Times reporters was actually there um, in Al-Hol interviewing, interviewing people. But this is a huge, sprawling place right. uh, with, with a, a lot of bad guys in it. But how dangerous. You talked about these these 50 guys. H- how dangerous are they? Who who are these people? Well, and are they going to get out? Yeah, let's unpack this a little bit, Danny, because you do have different things. You've got, first of all, you have camps that are run by the Syrian Kurds on behalf of the United States and other Western powers that basically are holding the, the, the male fighters, 11,000 actual fighters that they're most worried about. Collect, people collected off the battlefield, some of their leaders. They come from more than 50 countries around the world. And again, the president is upset because nobody wants to take them back. Guess why? You know, who wants to bring terrorists back to your country if you can keep them somewhere in the Syrian desert? So that's one big problem set. Those are the actual fighters. But what you put your finger on is something even even more dangerous in some respects in that you have this giant camp you've identified, more than 70,000 many ISIS family members. So we're talking mostly, you know, women and children and, and others, many of the women who are just as radicalized as their husbands were and have essentially taken over parts of these this camp to the point where the Syrian Kurds won't even go inside of these areas. The, the women run this and they exact retribution on other women who aren't loyal enough, who may be trying to break free. Right, and so you have a very violent situation. Yep. And then sadly, and my, my colleague Ben Hubbard reports on this, is that the children who are growing up, this is the next generation of fighters for whatever this next movement will be, whether you want to call it ISIS or Al-Qaeda or it'll be something else. But these are kids who are growing up, you know, not just under this influence, but in, in this really desperate situation, you know, this, this treeless, arid situation where they're not getting an education, you know. They're, 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 well, they are getting an education. Well, they're, yeah. you're right. They're, right. Exactly. That kind ideology. Of, right. ideology. Right. Oh. Yeah. But, but these, this is the next generation. This is another reason why many of the, of the countries whose family members don't want to bring them back right. because the they're UK ticking time The UK and Australia bombs. have both gone on right. you know, and right. have refused to take back So it's, it's very difficult. You've got, the Iraqi government has done its best. I think, you know, they've got a capacity problem on their side, how you bring both fighters and family members back. The Syrian government, obviously, it's, you know, problematic. And you've got, on the very local level, some local Syrian elements and the tribes have been taking some people back and trying to rehabilitate. But you still have literally tens of thousands of people, mostly, again, young people very who are very impressionable now, who are, and, and this is something that, again, the counterterrorism experts worry quite a bit of, what do you do with these people? Do you, do you just release them? Do you send them home? Do you let them, now that they've been radicalized in many cases, or are they just going to be the fighters of the future? What were the Kurds going to do with them? I mean, yeah, I get that, the, that that's now even more in question, but what was going to happen This was never them? in the Kurds' playbook. They were there. They had the organization. The U.S. and others went to them and said, hey, pretty please, can you help us with this little problem we have? And the problem has grown almost exponentially in the last And will continue of to grow if there are men and, and we'll women continue. there, I assume. And, and so the U.S. <laughs> subsidizes the jailers' salaries. They, they help, they've paid some millions of dollars to help retrofit and improve these facilities. This is just for the main fighters. 
but for these camps, you know, we're we're talking about there are a lot of NGOs and international aid organizations in there. But though that's a kind of a whole nother problem set that you know both of which aren't really being dealt with at the world level, despite and I don't the think anybody knows what to do. And this was one of the things the president even talked about, even in his initial comments after the October six phone call, is now should be a time when other countries step up, take your prisoners back. Take more responsibility for what's going on in Syria now so that the U.S. can pull out and pull out for good. That I want you to talk about north northwestern Syria. Is this the al-Qaeda, um, this very dangerous al-Qaeda group that's focused on outside attacks in northwestern Syria, is this what has grown out of what used to be called the Khorasan group? That's right. That's right. Can you talk a little bit about that? So you had this group, the Khorasan group, which back in the day, four or five years ago, was an offshoot. It was, think of them as the kind of the dirty dozens or two dozens sent by Zawahiri into Syria. These were some of the most hardened, veterans, seasoned Qaeda fighters from all over the world that were basically sent into Syria, basically to embed with this area and to think about and plot for attacks against the West. They were embedded in a, another Qaeda, then linked, Qaeda-linked group called al-Nusra that's since changed its names a couple of times, that was Qaeda-linked, but also much more focused on overturning Assad, really wasn't focused on attacking the West. But you basically use this group to give protection to this small cell of others. The U.S. intelligence community, special operations forces, targeted these external operation guys, the guys who were focused on attacking the West, pretty much decimated them. But what we've seen over the last year, year and a half or so, is some of the more extreme elements of Nusra who are saying it's not enough for us to fight Assad, particularly as it looks like Assad is going to survive. We want to now go back and turn our focus back to attacking the United States. And so you now have a group that's grown by some estimates in the intelligence community, 1,800, 2,000 fighters, much smaller than the Nusra group that's still focused on toppling Assad, but much more of a concern to the West. The problem is when they were going against its predecessor group, the Russians really weren't around. Now the Russians are there with all their air defenses, and they essentially provide a shield or air cover to U.S. intelligence trying to surveil these guys, attacks coming in against them. It's just been in the last, this summer, the U.S. was able to launch a couple of drone strikes in a very different way using standoff weapons. That means the United States basically operating aircraft in the air zone that it controls in northeastern Syria was able to launch long-range missiles and bombs and attack particular sites where these al-Qaeda-linked groups had, had gathered. And so the U.S. is keeping its eye on this growing threat. We don't control that area anymore. We don't control that area. And so it's not like we can send our special forces in to work with ground forces. The U.S. visibility in this area is much more opaque. You have Syrian government ground forces backed by Russian forces and all sorts of Russian aircraft and air defenses in there. So it becomes much more problematic of keeping tabs on this growing threat in northwest Syria that does pose you know, a risk to the United, not only the United States, but to Europe as well. And so that's something, uh, something else that the, uh, the, that the Pentagon and the intelligence community is watching very closely. So exit question. Let's talk politics for a second, because I know that one of the things Mark and I have, have said in probably in different ways in each national security discussion that we've had has been that while you know, is terribly distressing, and for all the reasons you suggested, and more that that Donald Trump has decided to has decided to cut and run from from Syria, betray our allies, and hand off to what essentially are our adversaries. There, the reality is that there's no one 
in, in running to be president of the United States among the Democrats who really wants us to do any more, who thinks we should keep troops in Syria, who thinks we should keep troops in Afghanistan. So play this forward. Where does, where does this all go, this, this, this ridiculous term, endless wars that people that trips off the lips? Well, where does it go? I, I think what's happened here is the president, and rightly so, in tapping into a, a, a war weariness in the American public over the last two decades has tapped in the sense there are endless wars that are associated with the two big ones, Iraq and Afghanistan, where we sent tens of thousands of troops, more than 100,000 troops into Afghanistan at its peak, 150,000 into Iraq at its its peak. Obviously, those numbers have come way down. Starting in the Obama administration, the idea was, we're not going to do that again. We're not going to send large numbers into the Middle East to fight these kind of battles. What we will do, though, is send relatively small numbers of American troops partner them with local indigenous forces or with regional allies like the French in West Africa who've been there for decades, help them deal with a common threat, whether it be ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whatever, and leverage the people who live there on the ground who can fight like Syrian Kurds or Somali fighters in in Somalia. A little like the Reagan doctrine, fighting the Soviets. Yeah, yeah, you know, basically, but it's trying to find this balancing point where you'll help arm and equip them. You'll provide training. You'll provide some equipment. You'll provide maybe some airstrikes. You'll certainly provide intelligence for them for wherever these threats are. The notion that you want to be able to contain these threats within national boundaries, going back to the whole question, if you don't want these groups to become transnational threats any more than they already are. So if you can empower various governments, and many of them in these kind of places are poor, with long porous borders, with security forces that are weak or corrupt. And so you're dealing with imperfect partners in many places or unwilling partners in so many places. But the whole idea here, and I think where the president maybe gets it wrong, is he conflates a very narrow, relatively inexpensive, targeted mission in northeastern Syria that has a very limited objective of dealing with ISIS and he kind of throws it in the mix and says, oh, it's the same thing as we've been dealing with Iraq and same thing as Afghanistan. And they really are different. And so I think everybody understood that in the coming months, the president made this very clear, he wanted to draw down from, from Syria. And it wasn't, the idea was U.S. forces weren't going to be there forever. I think what's happened, though, is whether it was in his initial reaction last December when he just tweets out, you know, we're out of there immediately. It's the immediacy of these kind of decisions that throws everybody off. It throws allies under the bus who aren't consulted, leading to resignations of people like Jim Mattis. That's why he resigned last December, not because he necessarily disagreed with the long-term goal of pulling forces out, but the idea that you've got other forces that you've enlisted you know, to help fight this common threat, and then suddenly you're, you're kind of notifying them in a tweet that we're out, and basically you're out too if you don't join us. Give us a reality check. You did a great piece in The Times laying out how many troops do we have in different places around the world and how many troops do we have in these war zones compared to, you know, Europe, Japan, Germany, South Korea, and all the rest of it. You laid out the numbers for us. Tell us how many troops right. do we have deployed. Well, let's, let's think, because most people think, oh my gosh, the biggest troop deployments are going to be in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, Afghanistan right now, we've had about 14,000 for the last few years, and now we learned this week through Secretary Mark Esper that we've come, we're coming down to the level of about 8,600, which was the number where it was when the president you know, started. So that's going to be the high watermark for deployed forces in a combat zone. We've got about 5,000, 5,500 or so in Iraq. That's been the number for what? Guess how many we have in Europe overall? 
there are 70,000 American military and civilian people in, in, in Europe, 35,000 ground troops. That's, of course, a, only a fraction of what they had during the height of the Cold War, three, over 300,000. But 35,000 in, in places like Germany and Italy and Spain. And nobody's talking about getting those people well, out. Well, don't, don't suggest it. That Japan, South Korea, the same thing. These are legacy forces, they're called. These are forces that have been in place since the end of World War II, the end of the Korean War, the end of the post-Cold you know, Cold War forces. The, the host countries typically pay a, you know, a large portion of this, and they're obviously not in combat right now. To but, the contrary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So last quick answer. Does this end with terrorist attacks in the United States? Well, I think that's always the great fear here. And one thing that the Bush administration struggled with, Secretary Rumsfeld struggled when Mark and I first got to know each other, and every president since then, is that terrorist organizations, they only have to be right once or twice every now and then, and they, they can do that. The American military, the American government has to be safeguarding this all the time, otherwise it's seen as a failure. And it's difficult now because the threat has changed. We're not gonna see another 9-11 style attack, a very complicated attack you know, with airplanes flying into towers again, but we almost certainly will see the kinds of attacks that have played out in places like in, in New York City or Southern California and Florida, where you have individuals who have been basically self-radicalized by following this propaganda online and, t- and obviously make homemade bombs or they grab a gun or they, they rent a truck and they drive it through crowds. And we've seen this in Europe. We've seen this in the United States. Those are the kind of, kind of a terrorist attacks that are, are still going to be the most common and the hardest for law enforcement to figure out because oftentimes it's one or two people figuring out in their basement at most. And it's very hard for people to detect that. So those are the kind of threats. But... To get back to this larger point, if you don't keep the pressure on these terrorist networks, wherever they may be, whether in the Middle East, where we're focused now, whether they're in Europe, as they were in Brussels and in Paris, in West Africa, they will spread. They've already shown us they can do that. It may take some time. It may, they may have to go through different avenues before. And they may certainly show up in a different form with different leaders and using different technology than they did before. But it's all going to keep coming back. It's something that is a, not just as a country, but as an international community, we have to keep the pressure on in order to keep not just the United States, but you know, the rest of the world safe as well. Those wise words. Thank you so much, Eric. You Thank you very much Thank for you. having me. Terrific. All right, Danny. So that was a really interesting conversation. What did you take from it? Well, I think one of the most important things for people to understand is that they think that we have this giant footprint in the Middle East that, you know, we've got tens or or hundreds of thousands of troops crossing from, you know, from the Gulf to the Levant. And of course, that's completely untrue. I mean, we had what I think I can legitimately call a handful of troops in Syria. And we have not that many more right now inside Iraq. You know, when you, as we discussed, sort of compare this to the number of troops we have in Germany, uh, and I think on one previous podcast you mentioned the number of troops we've got in Spain. Yep. You know, land of conflict. Uh, well, maybe it'll, maybe it will be, but it isn't right now. Well, that was a former Moorish area that was held by the Islamists. That we've, right. We're we're keeping our troops there to keep our boot on their necks, right? That's right. We're <laughs> we're stopping the advance of Andalusia again. But but this is the problem: is I think people think that we're paying an outsized cost for something that we're not. Rather, for one of the few times we can say this, we're really getting an outsized benefit. No, absolutely. And look, I mean, Donald Trump does make a legitimate point, which is that. 
people don't want to have hundreds of thousands of troops stationed all over the world, bearing all the costs. Our allies should be doing more. The Europeans should be doing more to help Ukraine. The Europeans should be doing more to help the Syrians. Our allies are not doing enough. Fair enough. What we're doing, the strategy we have, which which he inherited to some extent from Obama and has uh, pushed even more, is that we're not the pointy head of the spear, except on missions like the one with Baghdadi, where that's something that has to be handled by U.S. Special Operations Forces. The day-to-day operations being handled against ISIS in Iraq and Syria are being done by the Kurds and by done the, by the Iraqi security forces in Afghanistan by the Iraqi army. We're providing enabling support. We're providing them with fire support. We're providing them with mission preparation. We're providing them with air power. We're providing them with intelligence. But the people who are doing the fighting are not, for the most part, Americans. They're our allies. They're our proxies. We need to try and fix this in Syria because the Kurds are. If we're not, if the Kurds aren't going to fight ISIS, who is? I don't know. I don't. I don't know how we're going to fix this, and I don't know why anybody who is sharing this battle with us and taking the brunt of the casualties is going to do this, that again. Uh, there's another thing I want, to, I want to highlight that I think we didn't spend enough time on with Eric, and that is that in, in the public imagination, these groups, whether it's al-Qaeda or it's affiliates that are operating in northwestern Syria or it's the ISIS folks in Iraq and in Syria— they're not the same people they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago either. There's a tendency to think of these guys as all sitting in caves doing nothing. And the well, yeah. <laughs> and some of them probably are, but their capabilities are changing as well. So, you know, when we declare, when the president declares mission accomplished, we killed Baghdadi, he fails to appreciate some of the massive changes that have taken place. You know, just to just to outline a couple things that that I think people don't focus on. Is everybody aware that uh, that al-Qaeda has developed a laptop with a bomb in it that they can take through security and get on a plane that has that isn't detected? Okay, they've already tested it. You know, that's just one small area in which they've advanced. But imagine what else we don't know. And when we're not on the ground, when we're not there to get the intel, to do the operations like the operation that took Baghdadi, we don't, we don't get information. I think a lot of people just take for granted the fact that because we haven't had a mass casualty attack like 9-11 again just since September 11, 2001, that somehow the threat has dissipated or that they're not trying anymore, or they've lost interest, they're focused on other things. No, the reason we haven't had one of those attacks is because our intelligence community and our military and our special operations forces have done a yeoman's work in in preventing them from carrying out another attack like that. Yeah. So, and, and another thing, you know, Eric sort of expressed skepticism about the likelihood of another mass casualty yeah. attack. I, I actually, I don't agree with him about that. I don't either. Because, you know, look, we all say the same thing, which is they only need to be lucky once. We need to be lucky all the time. So I, I do think, especially because the, the value, the propaganda value for them of a mass casualty attack is so huge. I think they do remain focused on that. So Jim Mitchell is a good friend of mine. Jim Mitchell is the guy who interrogated Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And he literally, at that CIA black site, spent tens of thousands of hours talking to KSM. One of the things he said to Jim was that what you Americans don't understand is that you are very powerful militarily. And yes, you can defeat us militarily. But what you don't understand is we don't have to defeat you militarily in order to win. We just have to wait long enough for you to quit. We have to remember it happened under Obama. He wanted to quit. He wanted to pull out. And he learned the hard way through the rise of ISIS that that enemy gets a vote. And Donald Trump, I hope, will not have to learn the hard way 
that the enemy gets a vote. And as much as we want this war to be over, the enemy gets to choose whether it ends. We don't get to choose by ourselves and we have to keep fighting them. And we need allies to do that. If we don't want to send, if we don't want to send 100,000 troops to Syria, we need Kurds. If we don't send 100,000 troops to Afghanistan, we need the Afghan army to fight. If we don't want 100,000 troops in, in Iraq, we need the Iraqi army to fight for us. And nobody's going to fight with us if we betray them the way Donald Trump did with the Kurds. Amen. Thanks for listening, folks. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.